Hello, and today's episode explores the effect of a positive mental attitude. Uh, no, I said it wrong. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to really focus this time. Oh my goodness. Sorry. Welcome. Sorry. Welcome to this. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and today's episode explores the effect that a positive mental attitude can have, especially when faced with life-changing events. And we're super excited to be joined by Stephen Dowd, a disabled keynote speaker focusing on challenge, force change and crisis recovery, also non-exec director for global organisations. So not busy at all then, but welcome. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Lovely to have you here. Um, so... We want to get straight into it. I think uh, what we'll ask you straight away, though, is can you take us back to 2016 uh, and tell us how life has changed for you? Mm, sure. I mean, life has changed wholesale since then. Uh, in the lead up to 2016, I used to work for a global investment management group, BNY Mellon, a huge global business. I used to run recruitment for the investment management business in the EMEA region, so Europe, Middle East and Africa, regional. And uh, I used to have a, a guy on my team, a guy called Dan, who was one of those Iron Man types. You know, the one that mm -hmm. you don't have to ask him if he's an Iron Man, because he'll tell you. <laughs> and uh, so I did what every self-respecting boy would do when faced with the challenge of, do you want to get involved with some sort of charity fundraiser? And, uh, and I said, yes. So I started training to get involved in a, an event called Ride London. Uh, so for those that don't know, it's a hundred mile bike ride around London. You go up into the Surrey Hills and back again. And uh, so I set about training. I did all the things that you expect someone to do, I suppose. Bought all the Lycra I could find. Yeah, <laughs> most expensive carbon bike, fiber bike that was within my budget. Of course. And <laughs> even color coded my helmet with my shoes. Yeah, all the important stuff. <laughs> Perfect. And, uh, and then set about training. And we were doing like a 10 mile commute to and from work every day. He lived around the corner from me. Uh, and this particular morning, I wasn't overly fit. I wasn't, just to put it into context, I'm just an average guy, right? I'm a normal guy. Um, Had you cycled before? Not really. Yeah. No, I mean, I did as a kid, but nothing to this degree. And uh, so I set about properly training because 100 miles is a bloody long way. Mm. <laughs> that was really far. Yeah. I think I'd meet you at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get on the bus. <laughs> but yeah, it was going to take us about six hours or so. So it was it was pretty far. And uh, so I did the training and I'd, to and from my house in southeast London in Woolwich to Blackfriars, where our main office was. And uh, unfortunately, on this particular day in 2016, it was a summer day. Uh, I was traveling down to Dan's house. I w it was about eight, uh, it was about half past eight, something like that. And uh, I hit a barrier I didn't see. Just, I wasn't traveling quickly. I wasn't being reckless. It wasn't that the sun was in my eyes or whatever. It was a normal day. Um, but just out of nowhere, as I turned the corner, this, this particular barrier, which was very thin, it was black, it was unmarked. I just saw it at the very last minute. It's just too late to, to do anything about it. And uh, even though I did slam on my brakes, it was inevitable that I was going to hit this barrier. What kind of barrier? Sorry, but what what barriers? One of those A-frame barriers, sort of like um, it, so it's a barrier on its side. It, it swings open to it. Allows cars in. It's effectively um, so chest height is it? Or? Uh, it's a little lower than that. Right. Um, so it's exactly the right height for my front wheel and my my brakes to crush my fingers into my hands, which meant I just pivoted Jeez. over the top. Uh, and as I say, I'm six or three. I'm hundred kilos. All, I came crashing down uh, exactly onto the top left hand side of my head, and unfortunately changed the game for myself there and then so as i struck the ground i impacted the ground pretty hard i immediately sustained a spinal cord injury which left me paralyzed from that point the middle of my neck down it's my arms my legs and everything in between but something happened at the side of that road that that was fortunate for you 
in terms of the the support and the assistance you had immediately. Is that right? That is right. Yes. Yeah. So I'm there. I am lying on the grounds. I've gone through a hell of a lot of sort of oh wow moment you know you can't see stars i can't imagine wow with the word that you used yeah certainly um certainly some choice words we used yeah uh, no from this point i was basically i was punched in the face by the ground right so oh, you find yourself in that situation where you've you've impacted your face and you're seeing stars and it was no different and i went to reach up to my my face and do the most natural thing that you would do in that situation i went to rub my face rub the bit that hurts but my hand didn't get there and that's when i went and were you in pain or not? Not overly. I mean, I'd been punched in the face by the ground, um, so that hurt. But equally, I didn't realise at that point that I was paralysed from the neck down. So I had no pain below that point, but then I wasn't anticipating having any. Mm. I was sort of, oh, this, this hurts. But it was only when I went to reach up and rub my face again for the second time and my hand didn't get there again that I went, oh, this mm. is this is definitely. And that's when the you suddenly realise the horror that you're paralysed, that you can't move. Did you immediately think that? Yeah, I've got a human biology degree. So I had, and I was a sports injury therapist mm -hmm. before I got into financial services. So I had an understanding of bodies and I'm quite body aware in that regard anyway. Um, the first thing that I thought as I was lying on the ground was, I've done something seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. Something is really, and because I can't move my arms and my legs, I think I might know what it is. And did, um, so did someone call an ambulance for you? Uh, what happened then? Yeah, so this is the, what you refer to. There was some uh, some local people uh, were just running along the side of the Thames. It was bright and early, so I was lucky, really, that anyone found me at all, because I was in like, like a private road. Okay. Uh, so a couple of runners came over. One was a woman called Camilla, I found out later. And uh, she found me, well, the two of them found me on the ground. And it was really strange, because I, I went through this process of the panic rising in my chest. So before these guys arrive, the panic's rising in my chest. I can feel this panic setting in. I can't move. There's nothing I can do. Nothing I can do about this situation. And I know it's very, very serious. Um, I tried to scream out for help. And as I try and do that, I just mouthed the words because I didn't know at the time, but my diaphragm had been affected. So actually I didn't have any air enough mm -hmm. to be able to make a noise, um, which obviously over long term isn't conducive to life itself. Mm -hmm. right? I could have just suffocated on the ground there and there. Um, but I was, I, I somehow managed myself in that process to say, okay, this is seriously wrong. There's nothing you can overly do about this, but you just need to get through this second. So I, it was like a voice that was in the back of my head almost. Like it wasn't me, like something else had come out from somewhere else. It said, you just need to get through this second. So I did, I did that. I said, okay, and this voice said, okay, well done. Now you need to get through this second. And I did mm -hmm. that. And I literally lived my life second by second by second, just literally getting through that next second and being alive at the end. Of it. Oh that was the win. It was a crazy, crazy time. Um, if you'd have asked me, would I have responded like that before my injury? My answer would have been, hell no. Oh, freaked out. She tried to scream, <laughs> do all the things that, that most people would think they would do. So it was an interesting one for me that that popped out of nowhere. And that was uh, some, some sort of skill that I'd found to be able to get me through the really intense. Taker mechanism, yeah. And then Camilla came over with her friend and uh, and I'm conscious throughout this whole thing as well, right? So I never lost consciousness at all. Uh, I'm lying on the ground, my face in the grit, and still leaning my, my face down on the tarmac. And I'm literally out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking up at her and I'm saying, okay, you, come here. My name's Stephen Dowd. This is where I live. This is my wife's name. This is her phone number. This I need you to call her and tell her that I've been in an accident. I'm going to be going to hospital, but don't worry her. I don't want her to really... Oh, 
So I just want to manage the situation from the floor um, in a really, looking back on it now, in a kind of really managed way. Mm, you know, detached. It, it was almost like detachment. Mm. It really was. Like a dissociation. Mm. Uh, and then, and so once I'd kind of pushed her away to, to phone my wife and, and let her know what was happening to a degree, uh, I said to her friend, all right, you come here. I need you to phone 999. I just had a robbery in this accident. I've landed on my head. I might have sustained a spinal cord injury. Uh, it's really strange now, looking back on it, how wow. together I'd managed to make that conversation. But but it was exactly what I needed at that moment. I think maybe that's the point, right? I needed to get through second by second before they found me. Once they found me, I needed to have actions completed in a certain way and, and in a, done in a certain time frame. Uh, and then Dan came out as well, because I'm really late for stuff. Dan turned up when I was supposed to be at his house, uh, 10 minutes after this has all kind of gone on. And there he found me on the ground outside his house, because I was literally just feet away really probably about 50 feet away from his house so then you you um were taken by ambulance were you to a hospital oh what happened then i was yeah um so camilla did what i'd asked her to do actually camilla's friend did what i'd asked her to do and um within uh, would have been minutes really it feels like forever but it would have been minutes the uh, ambulance turned up i was put on a spinal board uh, i was taken by ambulance to st george's well to king's hospital originally King's College Hospital, and then off to St. George's Hospital where they were running um, an experimental research trial, Yeah, which I was very lucky to be qualified to be a part of. Um, so they put me through the battery of tests, the MRIs, the X-rays, all that sort of stuff. And uh, they said to me, Steve, your injury is, is devastating. Yeah. You haven't severed your spinal cord, so that's something. Mm. I crushed my spinal cord and bent it, stretched it effectively. Um, although that gave me the same... Um, total paralysis uh, at that point but it was a better prognosis than it would have been if I'd have severed my spinal cord frankly I might not have made it alive um, however uh, we it, it's a devastating injury, injury and we don't know if you're ever going to get anything back so there I am at 36 years old lying on my back looking up at ceiling tiles 38 years old sorry looking up at ceiling tiles from a pillow potentially forever and that might not get better wow just Wow. <laughs> um, so they said to me, however, which is a great word to hear. Yeah. However, uh, we are running this clinical experimental research trial and there's no guarantee. Yeah. We can't say that it would definitely get better if you went through this thing, but we can't make it any worse. Uh, so if you wanted to be involved, you could be number 45 for 50. We're only funded for 50 people. Oh my goodness. Uh, it could be, you could be a part of this trial if you wanted to be. And my wife and I had a very honest conversation. I was only given an hour to really make that decision because part of the the intervention itself was about speed. You know, it was all about reducing bruising as quickly as possible in the damaged area in order to save as much of the nerve tissue as possible. And the difference can be like just a few percent difference of, of saving that amount of neural tissue can be the difference between walking and not walking. So it's really important to get to it quickly. And so my wife and I had a very honest conversation, very honest conversation, kind of trigger alert. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to be a part of my future, if it was going to be me driving around in a power chair with my mouth forever, very honestly. Mm. Um, some people live fantastic lives like that, um, but every injury is unique. Every response to every injury is unique. And in my case, I didn't want that for me. And I didn't want that for Helen. And actually, she didn't want that for me either. None of us had signed up to that, and it was potentially going to be forever. It was a huge ask on any of us. Um, but Switzerland's always there, right? So we decided that we would get involved in this and within just a few minutes it didn't take the full hour we uh, basically went you know what 
we don't really have a lot of choice here. It's your choice when you have no choice. Mm -hmm. And in our case, it was to choose to respond effectively to that situation and give ourselves the best shot um, of being able to make a recovery. And was, it, was that just luck that you went to that hospital and they were running that, or, or were you in a hospital that, that they knew about this sort of nationwide trial? Or? It is nationwide, um, but it was quite lucky that I was where I was at the time where I had it. Uh, as I say, I was number 45 of 50. So if, I, if it happened to me just a few weeks later, I might not have been eligible. They might have closed the books for that. Um, but then equally, uh, I went to King's College originally who had a reciprocal arrangement with St. George's to say, if you get anyone like this time, right. us, send them, them to us, which is exactly what happened in my case. It feels like you're very kind of like balanced at this point. I, I don't know how many people would have like reacted in this way. You know, it feels very like measured, very balanced, very practical pragmatic I can't think of any more words that, that go like that but it does feel like you were just like very you, and even now you know very balanced about it yeah I think it's I didn't feel 100% balanced okay. uh, I felt like my world had been turned upside down and shit yeah. a snow globe yeah. so more kind of now a reflection as well absolutely um, but at the time I think there was that piece of me that just went panicking's not going to help you mm. you know freaking out is not going to it's totally understandable yeah, but it's not going to help you get through this. How? What are you? What are you going to do to get through this? Not to freak out. Yeah, because you've got to find that that positive step forward. Not just for me. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm thinking about me at that time. That you do when these things happen. But equally, I've got a wife and kids and some colleagues uh, and all of all of that that people were reliant on me. Yeah. So I had to get through this, uh, and so I had to find a way to do that. And have th had that always been a natural kind of trait for you? Were you always a very optimistic, positive? Is that that was always your kind of mentality before the accident? It's funny you say that. I am a bit of an optimist. I'm a bit of a a bit of a, um, a bit of a forward forward projecting optimist, right? So I'm I'm okay. always thinking about what's going to happen in the future, rather than it's going to be great right now. But what's going to happen in the future, and how's that going to work uh, and be good in the future? And in fact, I used to work with a colleague, Zeba Goddard. Mm -hmm. um, Zeba was uh, a good friend of mine, and still is a good friend of mine. But she was a colleague of mine at the time in the HR team at B. And after the injury had happened, and I'd been through the surgery, still in hospital, I was there for four months in hospital. And um, uh, she came along to the hospital, and she sort of tongue in cheek said, "Of all the people for this to happen to, you're kind of the person that would." most likely get through this really and it's really funny because at the time i was like that's not fair <laughs> of all the things <laughs> just yeah. that, you know, of all the people that could have to i'm glad it happened yeah <laughs> uh, yeah so i we went hold on a second but then in on reflection i think that that positive mental attitude that we mentioned earlier i think is important um there's a big difference for me though between just positive mental attitude which is good and let's face it from from a from a biochemical point of view right it changes your your biochemistry having a positive attitude increases things like serotonin let's call it the happy hormone uh, where you physically change your brain chemistry by having those kind of positive thoughts and, and the reverse is true as well where increased things like cortisol let's call it the stress thinking negative thoughts or thinking negatively will potentially create a negative environment for your body um but i think for me it wasn't just about positivity it was about pragmatic optimism it was about can it be better and how do i make it better and then that instills hope not just in me but in others as well and hope is a currency we can all trade in hope really is the be all and end all of optimism as far as i'm concerned and uh, i was talking about this with a client a little while ago and one of the one of the things that popped up in that conversation was 
what we ended up referring to as the hope equation. Um, so coupling, if I just break that down, the belief that better is possible is the optimistic bit. But the belief that you can actually affect what that better looks like together equals hope. Otherwise, it's just blind optimism. You're wanting it to be good. Want to, I, I might want to levitate. As much as I want it to happen, it's not... <laughs> But if I can couple that with something that gives me the belief that I can actually affect that change and then go ahead and do that, then that just gives me power. And that power is what fuels the hope, I think. Certainly. So, so where does acceptance come in to it? Acceptance is a huge, uh, absolutely huge. After I, as you mentioned at the top of this conversation, I'm a keynote speaker now and I, I kind of moved out of recruitment, now work with organizations around the world to look at challenge, force change, crisis recovery, helping their staff tool up so that they can face some of their biggest challenges and come through them, uh, the other side. And I developed a, a toolkit there, which is nine letters. It spells out the word challenge, partly for marketing purposes. <laughs> but, but it's... Um, Everyone likes an acronym. Absolutely. But <laughs> people will remember it. And uh, But the A from challenge is accept the situation objectively. Now that breaks down. I, I, could, I probably should have emphasized that in a different way. It's accept the situation objectively. Accepting what's happening is a good thing, but unless you can accept it in a way where it's not about the why me, it's about the why not me as well, then you don't have as much power to move forwards. But if you can accept a situation for what it is, for what it's not, for what you can do, for what you can't do, then you kind of can know where you're going to double down your effort, right? You know what you can focus on, you know what you can affect change in, and you know where you're wasting your time. Um, but you can only do that if you look at things through an objective lens. And it feels, though, that you've got to be quite mentally stable to go through all of these thought processes. I'm not saying you, you, you were or you weren't, but I, I think from my perspective, I don't think I'd be in the best mental state to be able to think so clearly as, as you were. But how, how did you have that clarity then? It's a difficult question to answer because I don't think there's a reason for why i think it's more of a you don't know how strong you can be until it's your only option so i didn't think i would respond in this way if in hindsight if i look back at that situation and said the person that i know me to be ahead of the injury would he have reacted in the way he did and then that surprises me i look back and go oh wow did you really get through that second by second did you really control that situation when camilla and her friend came over did you really manage the situation in hospital and have nurses changed when it didn't work for you and all this sort of stuff. Um, I wouldn't have said that was me. Uh, but when I had no choice, then it had to be me. And in order to make that, and again, being the optimist, in order to make the future, not just, uh, well, in order to affect the future and become hopeful that the future would be better, then that part of the equation of belief that I could actually make that happen was really important. And as soon as I coupled that with a positive mental attitude, then I became powerful. I mean, powerful makes change happen. And how long, so thinking then about your kind of recovery, how long was your, your recovery period? So, well, Technically, I'm still recovering. So um, today I'm still uh, classified as quadriplegic or tetraplegic. It's kind of the same thing. Um, Can you just, ex oh, sorry. You yeah, no, <laughs> what it means is I'm a uh, limb impaired in all four limbs. Okay. So the quad relates to four, which is all four limbs. Um, the other version that you may hear is paraplegic. Yeah. And that's normally waist down. People are paralyzed, so they can have a core and they can have upper body strength. Yeah. They tend not to have legs, whereas quadriplegics tend to have either no core and or no arms as well. 
So you and you're still in your recovery, you say? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I. At the top of this conversation, again, we refer to me as a disabled keynote speaker, again, yeah. partly for marketing purposes. Um, but I always think of myself as like a recovering injured person. And I still think of myself as I had an injury in 2016 and I'm still recovering from that injury. And I wonder if that will ever feel different. I don't think I'll ever necessarily go, I'm not recovering from that because I, well, technically I am always recovering from it. And who knows what the developments in science might be or the development in understanding around uh, rehabilitation and things like that. So I'm always kind of trying to push the boundaries and try and find a new step forward, a new way forwards. Um, but that said, that is almost the flip side of acceptance for me. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a dangerous knife edge for me because am I really accepting that I'm disabled or am I just saying, well, disability is a, a moniker that I don't necessarily want unless it's helpful. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it kind of cuts both ways. So is your recovery, so, so you, would you say you'll be, you still have recovery? rehabilitation then or, or are you at the peak of your re, re, you've been repeat I can't say that rehabilitated <laughs> <laughs> um, it comes and goes like anyone's fitness uh, so forget my spinal cord injury for a second if I don't work out I get less fit if I do work out I get more fit and that's true and I have a spinal cord injury as well so there are certain things like my hands that are still paralysed and, and I still can't really work they're one of my biggest frustrations actually I'm forever dropping stuff uh, just yesterday on my way to meet a client, I took a trip in the in the road because my foot drag on my left-hand side just caught pavement in a weird way and ended up head-butting a pavement, hence the bruise that you can see. Um, we can't verify yeah. there's a bruise. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so those kind of things are, uh, the, the, they're still there. Mm -hmm. uh, are they always going to be there? Probably. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, there's always an incremental improvement I can be making. Uh, and as soon as I stop trying to make those incremental improvements, then I definitely. So until then, I'll continue. So so t tell us a little bit about the um, the virtual summit climbing of Mount Everest that you did and, and how that was linked with acceptance and, and your positive attitude. Yeah, so Isolation Everest Challenge, it became as a hashtag. Um, which is a very long hashtag. I was going to say, God, I had to imagine typing that one out. And that, is, that is a long one. Um, but it was, a, it, was a, it was an interesting event. It was, there's another guy out there called Ed Jackson. Uh, Ed Jackson was a former rugby player, a uh, professional rugby player. He dove into the shallow end of swimming pool. And you can imagine the ending. Uh, so he's also quadriplegic. Um, but he's now a walker as well. So even though he has an incomplete spinal cord injury, high level, similar to mine, a uh, little lower down, but effectively similar area. Uh, and he's done some amazing things and he's been able to get up and walk again and he now runs a charity of his own called Millimeters to Mountains where they literally take people often with spinal cord injury related stuff um, up mountains and climb incredible mountains for real um, but over COVID he was sat at home really wanting to do this big climb that he had planned and then COVID got in the way and said nope nobody can go anywhere so we were all in lockdown and I remember him saying rather than climb the walls I might as well climb the stairs so he wanted to take on Everest on his stairs at home. And he started climbing. I heard about this about 48 hours before it actually happened through Wings for Life, which is a spinal cord injury foundation that funded my um, trial. And we, he and I are both ambassadors for Wings for Life. So I kind of got a bit of a, an inside track that he was doing this thing. And um, I said, you know what, that sounds fun. Why don't I kind of, I, I gave him a call and said, like, why don't I give you a hand? Maybe I'll go to base camp. Not realising that base camp isn't actually at the base of Everest. It's actually five and a half thousand feet. It's quite far. It's, it's two thirds <laughs> of the way. Yeah. So, yeah, I shot myself in the foot, really, because yeah. I'm not a mountain climber at all. Uh, I was 
48 hours notice and I thought right we'll give it a go we'll see how we go uh, so I kind of worked it out if I did 25 minutes on and five minutes off and we could do 12 hour days then that will be about three and a bit days of walking up and down the stairs so I downloaded a few audio books and and set about just helping him out just to see how far I can go yeah and um and we did some fundraising around it and I pushed it out into some social media and actual media like traditional media outlets and um and we got a fair amount of traction and I say we I mean I'm gonna and all of it I pushed into his his world so it's down to Ed actually that whole thing um but I just walked a bit quicker and a bit further than he did over that period so I was very lucky to I beat him by four hours <laughs> which I'm secretly really pleased about um but yes yeah, so I, I became, to him. <laughs> a little, little bit it's true but I became the first quadriplegic to virtually summit Everest on my stairs at home which uh to put into context was like twelve and a half thousand steps. My gosh! Up my f- up my stairs. So how did you stay positive with that? Because that's just the same, like well, twelve stairs. Yeah, I mean, is the word for that? There's no wow in there. No, there really isn't. I couldn't think of anything that I would. I mean, even for a good cause, I would struggle to buy my motivation. Well, to be fair, again, I just structured it out and I said, right, okay, yeah. let's put a Red Bull can every other step, <laughs> and then every time I do five flights of stairs or or however many it was, can't remember now. There's a number of stairs, then I'll um I'll grab a Red Bull or uh or something like, I don't know, a donut or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Just something to keep you going. and um, Or even have a break. Yeah, I used to schedule my breaks in so that I knew that if I do this much, then I can get to that thing. So lots of mini rewards. And uh, so I had a big, bold, ambitious goal. Well, yeah, become the person who could summit Everest. Never really intending to, but that being the massive goal. Mm. Uh, but then I coupled it with those tiny little wins. Uh, another flight of stairs. Yeah, another flight of stairs gets you a Red Bull. Another flight of stairs gets you a whatever. Yeah, and then yeah. kind of working it forwards from there. Um, listening to my books, uh, as I did a whole bunch of audio booking. And um, I really thought I was going to be cheered on my, by my family, and they did to start with for the first few flights. And then after that, I'm going to go get a cup of tea. <laughs> a bit. So, yeah, so three and a half days was <laughs> literally you on the stairs and stuff. And I was like bleeding from the hips by the time I was finished. It was not fun. Ooh. I don't recommend that to anyone like us. Um, I don't mean literally, but it, 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 was, <laughs> it, it was painful. On, on more than one occasion, I was literally on my hands and knees, like crawling up the stairs, going, oh my God. And it, the up actually isn't necessarily a problem because... Oh, it's the down. The down, that's scary. Mm. I've got hands that don't really work, hanging onto a barrier, oh. 12 hours into a walk, going, mm. please don't fall in your oh, face because that can end really badly. Yeah. And actually, I only had two or three scary moments where I nearly didn't make the rest of the climb. But yeah. um, most of it actually was pretty okay. And does... um Fear doesn't feel as though it's part of your being but that must have been some points throughout this experience that you felt fear and has that affected you at all fear is very much a part of my life um it's a part of my life i'm okay with i kind of put fear in the same camp as failure uh, i never used to by the way mm. uh, before my injury i was a fear of failure person i would not do something unless i knew i could mm. do it unless i knew I, even more deeply than that i suppose uh, well, is it deeply? Maybe superficially. Um, I wouldn't do things unless I was seen to be good at doing things. Okay. I wasn't just good that's... enough to be doing something. I had to have an audience and see me doing that thing. That's brutally honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, there's nothing like looking down the barrel of the guns where you go, why not you yeah. yeah. Um, so, so now uh, I had to be, I did have to be honest with myself about that. And it's actually quite tough to go, I like that person. 
I don't think if that was a person that was in front of me right now, they went, this is a thing that really drives me is just to be seen to be great at stuff. I'd be like, well, you're an idiot. I don't really want to get involved in that. And that was me. So there were some very honest answers around, are you okay? You're not okay with this stuff. And But as I say, I put fear in the same camp as failure now. Now I'm all about try it and fail. And if you're not failing enough, you're not trying on, right? Get out there and, and do it. Um, again, at BMY Mellon, there was a woman called Lida Glyptis, uh, who is amazing. And Find her on Twitter, Dr. Lida writes. Absolutely. She's good. <laughs> she writes some incredible yeah, she does. on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. And uh, and she and I st are still friends today. Uh, she was the head of innovation at BMY Mellon when I was there. And uh, she used to talk about um, just failing and failing often. It wasn't about failing fast. There's all that sort of Facebook stuff. Um, it's almost just like hustle porn, isn't it? That's yeah. out there all the time. It just drives me insane. It's not Can I just say, you've just now made our um, made our, our podcast oh, yeah. episode like... Um, Extreme, yeah. I'm not saying well, one word, <laughs> and I live for it. <laughs> but, but yeah, people do that. Right? I mean, it's, yeah. There's that whole generation around. You've got to be trying harder, or you've got to be trying harder than you can even physically do. And if you're not doing that, then you're failing. And I hate that because that's it's failure is just a measure of success or, or a measure of progress, really. Um, and the entrepreneur in me wants to fail and, and try new things all the time because it's it's different things that actually are going to move things forward. If everyone did the same yeah. thing every time, you know, where's the innovation? Where's the where's the where's the growth? Um, so yeah, so people like Leader um, really influenced me around uh, how I think about failure, how I think about trying and failing. And I can guarantee you, I sat in my hospital bed. A little short story. Um, I was in my wheelchair. I was in a, like, effectively a power chair because I couldn't drive it myself but I was lifted out on a winch from my bed dropped into my chair and left in my chair for a bit and um, just to kind of give you a bit of a different scenery and um my in front of me I have my my hands I couldn't control but my hands were just on a table that was bolted to the front of my wheelchair and uh my wife had gone out from the hospital to go and get some lunch or do something uh, and in my mind I went right I'm going to do something that's going to be impressive by the time she gets back. What can I do? And so I had a bunch of blueberries that were on the table. And so I'm going to pick up one of these blueberries. So when she gets back and go, here, watch this, and just pick up a blueberry just casually. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so I did. I reached over to this blueberry. Reached over. I kind of shuffled my arm over to this blueberry. And I traced that blueberry around this little table, just desperately trying to pick it up for what felt like hours. I mean, in reality, it was probably maybe an hour. Um, but I was chasing it around and even a couple of them, I, I, I was able to, to just about grasp, but squish a little too hard. And I'm saying, oh, that's not going to work. It needs to be, a, it needs to be a controlled pickup. I can't trosh a blue. Yeah. <laughs> I was impressed by that. But, um, by the time she got back, I was like, Hey, watch this. And I did, I was able to grab this little blueberry and just move it. And it's only a fraction of an inch really, but just, just to move it. Um, and we celebrated like it was Christmas day because I'd taken a really tiny micro goal. And in a very short space of time, I'd be able to master something I couldn't do before. And no one's going to live the rest of their life going, hey, look at me moving a blueberry <laughs> quarter of an inch. That's not a career. That's not, a, that's not something to live for. But at that very moment in time, mm -hmm. it was the most important thing I could have done in that hour. And that then releases the serotonin, which makes you feel good about what you're doing. And then you start to feel optimistic. And because you made it happen, that leads into hope. And then with the hope, that's infectious to Helen. Mm. Helen now goes, so you can do this. What else can you do? Yeah, and then is our life going to be better as a result of moving paper? Um, so 
Yeah. You you speak about your wife a lot, um, and I've read lots of things, and I've I've watched you speak, and and you do talk about her a lot. Um, what sort of impact did this have on her, on your relationship, and you know, and and was there a time when she had to have a positive mental attitude as well? And you know, what was her acceptance journey like? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Helen and I have been together forever. I was nineteen when I met Helen, forty-four now. So yeah, been together a long time. Um, she's different to me, which I think is a bit of a superpower as well. Right? Always have a partner that thinks and acts differently to you. It's a great combo, yin yang and all that. Um, I think she has optimism in a different way. I'm I'm like a little puppy. I just want everything to be great, everything to be wonderful. Um, but she's more of a risk assessor. She can be somewhat pessimistic on occasions. By her own admission, she's a bit of a um, uh, what's the word when you think the worst thing catastrophizer uh, and we have to work with each other on that and if you wind that back to the period where I'm actually in hospital in the early days of being in hospital particularly I couldn't afford to be anything other than laser focused on optimism and hope and the idea that I couldn't do something wasn't in my vocabulary couldn't be I couldn't afford it it would have just been too heavy, too too weighty to to have stopped me moving forwards, and um, that was difficult. Actually, it was difficult for both of us. There's this uh, philosophy uh, around I can't remember what it's called now, but um, there's this philosophy around rings, effectively. So, you're let's say you're the most important person in your world. You've got this, you're at the centre of your circle, and then going outwardly, you can share to other people, but you don't really want to share it inwardly. You don't want you don't want someone over there with the problem. You, you're like dumping on that problem. You need to take your issues and take them outside. Um, and Helen did a lot of that. She shared a lot with her friends and her family about how she was feeling. Um, she wrote a blog, actually, for the last hundred days. Um, and that was really interesting to... Published. Uh, well, it was published online. It was, oh, just, cool. it was just on... Yeah. So she was external facing then. So that was yeah. brave. It was. It really was. She did on Facebook. That's right. Okay. And um, and it was interesting. It was kind of two reasons. One was a practical reason because you don't want to regurgitate it every time you speak to someone. You go, how are you doing? <laughs> Here we are again. Um, so this way, it was just, here's the blog. Read, read the blog. Um, but equally for her, it's almost like journaling because she's not a social media person really. And for her, just putting it down on paper, just writing it out was a way for it to anonymously just escape into the world. Um, but it was incredible how many people read what she was going through. Um, and I think she found that helpful. I think she found that really helpful to know that other people knew, to have comments from other people, just supportive comments, uh, empathetic comments, you know, things that she would take back from her own writing when she'd look back on it as well and say, right, this is what I felt last week, this is what I felt last month, this is what I felt last year, still looks at it now sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's been really helpful. There's that reflection piece. Yeah. I um, I just wondered about going back to, so you kind of recruitment background, that was your kind of day job before. I just wonder if you look at the kind of recruitment world differently post-accident. So, like, is there anything that you think could be improved or actually is there any kind of bugbears on reflection of that of that kind of, I don't know, industry perhaps? Um, but, you know, thinking about how we recruit people and, yeah, attract talent. Yeah, no, definitely. I think recruitment itself is a... It, it's, it should always take into account all of the kind of isms. Uh, it should look at uh, you know, your diverse slate uh, in to want of a 
for want of a better phrase, the diverse select candidates in any particular job search should be the panoply of everyone, right? Should represent everyone. I worked in financial services. Uh, it doesn't represent everyone. It represents a certain number of people in a very good way. Everyone, it underrepresents many people uh, in a bad way. Um, and we would do our best as recruiters to kind of bring the, the spectrum to the table. Um, but equally, I think diversity... I, I think diversity can sometimes be a red herring. I'm more interested in the world of inclusion than I am in the world of diversity. Yeah. I don't care if I've got 50 in the same. Take out government at the moment. We've got an Asian guy that has a, well, he's a British guy, but he's an Asian heritage guy that is our prime minister. We've got Asian women uh, in the board. We've got black guys in the board, but they're all still crap politicians. Uh, I'm just going to give over my uh, my political stance here. Um, they're all still just rubbish. And, and in a way, that's a good thing that, even black guys can be rubbish. Even uh, brown women can be rubbish in those seats. Um, wouldn't it be lovely, though, if we were able to look at inclusion and how we can bring people from different experiences and different backgrounds to genuinely change the thought process rather than just more of the same group thinking a slightly different color or in a slightly different uh, outfit? That's, that, that's, um, that's more interesting to me is the inclusion. Uh, so d does, in, does recruitment do that well? No. Um, can it do it well? I think it can because it's... It's at the vanguard, right? It's right at the front. It's right at the, the pointy edge of who do you go and... I was in search as well, so we're at the senior end of the market mostly. Mm. Uh, who do you actually tap on the door of to see whether or not that's something that you can improve their life by giving them a slightly better job and a slightly new home? Um, but as, a, as an industry, how can we change the, change the dialogue around what people are talking about, how they're talking about it? Interesting. Um, so I'm going to go just quickly back to inter to acceptance and reality and and um we were looking at we're doing a little bit of research into this and there are there's um 11 ways to cope with reality and, and acceptance by someone called lolly daskal um and what and what a lot of the things that you're already talking about um, but one of the things um that they say is you've got to accept that struggle will always be part of your reality um and you're nodding sagely with with that is that is that part of your psyche that you know that things are going to be difficult are going to be a struggle um and therefore you're ready for it i think from my point of view the i'm a bit of a biological determinist right i've got a human biology degree so i kind of think along the science lines we're not designed to be anything other than struggling i think our general existence is about how do you get through that day how do you find dinner that day how do you keep the saber-toothed tiger away from your family and tribe that day um, and I think, it, and I say that day over and over because I think it's now is the only thing that's really true anyway, right? History, what happened last week doesn't exist anymore. You can't go there. Uh, the future is something that we just make up in our, in our, um, homo sapien brain, you know, the, go and ask an elephant about the future. Well, actually, it's probably a bad example, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, go and ask an animal about the future and then, yeah, you're not going to get much of a response. So I think now is the only thing that's true and it's the only thing that you can really affect. Um, so that's really important. But I do think struggle reinforces the why. You know, I think we're, it's, it's not just about the how, it's about why you're doing what you're doing and, and how, you, and, and what does that mean to your, your progression, mm -hmm. I suppose. I think that brings us on to uh, 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 one of our uh, stalwarts of this uh, podcast is asking our guests um if they have a top piece of advice or uh, because inclusion is an action, right? So we can talk about inclusion as much as we want, but actually it's a verb. It's like we've got to do something um, to make people be inclusive and feel included. So 
Do you have a top tip or an inclusive action that you'd share with our listeners? So, yeah, I thought about this. You asked me this before we came on, so I had a bit of time to think about it. It's great. Tick, thank you. Perfect game. Very bad game. <laughs> you definitely get credits for that. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> uh, but, yes, I think mine, of all of the elements that I that I talk about, uh, one of the ones that really resonates most with people, I think, is around the concept of connected goals. Yeah, we touched on it earlier about having those bold, ambitious goals, those super hard-to-reach really ambitious goals but then coupling those with the micro goals the tiny goals the little the blueberry yeah just moving the blueberry around um and but having the two in connection with one another so from it and then why i suppose is the obvious question right i think that the those bold long-term macro goals they really kind of set the direction they set the they set the um the precursors to hope mm-hmm. actually as to how you you're going to get there and then looking at those small daily micro goals, they provide more of the motivation uh, and particularly with the mini rewards where everybody wants that extra can of Red Bull or other drinks. It's So yeah, I think those kind of things t- together work well. Uh, so my challenge to DNI Spy fans is going to be to pick a macro goal, something that's meaningful to you, something that's genuinely challenging to you. And I want you to note how optimistic you are out of 10 about how you can achieve that. Then I want you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn, so connect with me on LinkedIn and share it with me. Don't don't share with anyone else though. Just share it with me because an accountability partner is really positive and you're far more likely to achieve your goal if you have an accountability partner than if you just make up your New Year's resolution. Um, and it's totally confidential. It doesn't go anywhere. But the fact that you, I might, don't, I don't even need to respond. The fact you told me about it, you now have an accountability partner. And then I want you to list seven micro actions that you can do towards it. These are like the little, the, the blueberry actions. And I want you to send them across to me as well. They might change, bear in mind, through the course of the week. And I want you to achieve each one on a consecutive day. So I want seven micro wins. And we can celebrate them together. But you have to celebrate them. I don't care if that's like have a Harrod bow or whatever it is, right? You've got to celebrate the fact that you achieved that micro goal. Brilliant. So you're, you're inviting people to um, slide into your DMs, are you, for, for LinkedIn? Is that how to do it? You're a nice by friend. You're a friend of mine. So, yeah, feel free. And as an accountability partner, I, genu- I can't underline that enough. Accountability partnership, if not me, pick someone else. But if it's if you've got someone in your world that yeah. knows what you're, to, what you're trying to achieve, there are, there's lots of um, research around do you tell the whole world what your goal is? Are you more likely to achieve it if you've, if you've just told the whole world? Um, or if you tell no one, yeah. you're likely to achieve it. And there are lots of stats around this stuff. Some of it would suggest that actually biochemically, if you tell the whole world your body, you almost feels like you've achieved it already. Yeah. So you're less likely mm. to go on and do it, which I thought was quite interesting. It is. Um, but I, I'm on the other side. I think don't tell anyone. Have an accountability partner that you share it with, but don't tell, don't tell the world. And then just take it step by step. You know what? If it works after that first week for you, I guarantee going to rate yourself again how more, how positive are you now in achieving that bold ambitious goal i guarantee you're going to be on an upside for that and if it works over the course of seven days rinse and repeat excellent great top tip thank you for that i'm very interactive barry i'm uh, so both yeah. you send me your goal Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Am I going to be like Aaron Haribo every day if that's all right? Whatever is your reward. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's great. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really interesting conversation. It has. To learn more about you. Thank you so much. Thank you. take away blueberries Ooh. from that blueberries i really liked what the blueberries represented mm, definitely. Um, great a great inclusive action yes thought that was brilliant so just a future guest so hope they were do their homework <laughs> as much as uh, as that um so to create a macro goal um and how optimistic you are to achieve it um and then to share it um Mm -hmm. have some micro actions seven micro actions and uh dm yeah steven so he's under linkedin uh steven dowd s-t-v-e-n-d-o-w-d um and contact him absolutely yeah i love that yeah and it was interesting wasn't it about that positive mental attitude and that he he had it straight away Mm. it didn't it didn't come sort of throughout his recovery it seemed to like the accident happened and straight away he was in control and Mm. he was being positive with positive actions I just I mean you can only compare it to yourself because that's all you know isn't it and I just wonder how many like even myself how much positivity I would have in that situation you know when you're there and you're yeah but he said he didn't know what he was how he was going to react yeah, very true. Mm. I think you do have to be, like, you have to have some form of resilience, though, to re- respond in that way. Mm. I suppose it's that, that fight or flight, isn't it? What, you know, in, in a in a, mm. in a a crucial situation, do you run away or do you deal with it head on? Yeah, it feels as though he was really pragmatic. Mm. I can't, you know, even when he was talking about it here, it was just very, like, process, process. But always coming back to that, Okay, let me just think. I've just got to go another second, another second, yeah. another second. And that's a really good tip, I think. And that then goes back to the blueberries. That, you know, like it's small micro things that help towards one big thing. Mm. And we, I think we could all probably at times do with a bit of that yeah. perspective. Yeah, and because we say inclusion in action, it doesn't have to be a massive action. No. It's just a small action, you know, just those micro actions, as Stephen calls them. Yeah. Um, and then, then you'll get, if, if enough people do enough micro actions, then there will be a, a an inclusive change in, in that person and those people, but also in society in general. Yeah, and it also goes back to what we always talk about, that inclusion isn't a big thing. No. It's very simple and very like basic on so many levels. And I think that's what was really nice about his top tip, mm-hmm. that actually it's very doable and not overcomplicated you can find us on twitter our handles are in the show notes below and if you've liked what you've heard please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically thanks for listening